0: Need connection? Accountability? Support as you explore the next level version of you? Give yourself a real gift this year. The gift of time. The Warrior Women Mastermind is starting again in January. A curated group of six amazing women in a safe, collaborative setting. Think you don't have enough time? The money? Wrong. Ask yourself if you're worth three hours a month and $25 a day. The biggest discovery some of the women who sign up for my mastermind figure out is they have so much in common with other women and that they have traded their worth for a to-do list. Set up your interview call with me by going to lizswatek.com. That's L-I-Z-S-V-A-T-E-K.com. Space is limited and will sell out fast. Don't miss this opportunity to put yourself first. Women aren't born warriors. We become them. And the road to becoming a warrior is bumpy as hell. Each week, I'm interviewing women who, through tragedy and triumph, are leaping for greatness. Get ready to unleash your inner warrior. I'm Liz Swadek, and this is Conversations with Warrior Women. Hello, warriors. Today, a woman's story that is so mind-blowing, so traumatic, it's hard to believe that she's lived what she went through. I was getting emotional even asking her my first question. You will be inspired by how she's taking her story, her struggle, and helping others. She went from victimhood to victorious. Her spirit, which kept her alive, her daughter as her North Star, and one incredible escape that has led to a beautiful life. In her family, the generational trauma stops with her. Now she's beyond empowered to make change. When you're listening today, ask yourself, what is your legacy? What vulnerable story about your life could be the catalyst for change in someone else's? I always say, every woman has a story, you just need to ask her. What will be your story? And how can you rewrite the narratives in your own life? All right. Carrie Murray is back with the Bra Network. Carrie, I heard you have some news for us. Last time you came on and you talk, we talked about the Bra Network. This time you're expanding.
1: What's going on? Huge, exciting news. We're growing, we're getting bigger. We have new members coming in from all over the country. So now we're getting back to having in person events and they're coming to a city near you. We've got them in Houston, Austin, Boston, Portland, Ventura, Orange County,
0: San Diego. We're coming for you. Oh my God, that's so exciting. So you can live anywhere. I love this. So Carrie, what do you think it is about Bra Network that makes it so special? Well, why don't I ask you?
1: You've been a huge cheerleader for me, a huge champion for the women of this network. What do you like about Bra Network?
0: Oh my gosh, Carrie. Well, if I mean, put me on the spot, why don't you? But I will say that I love the collaborative nature of everything bra stands for, whether we're hiring each other, whether we're going to events together, we're referring clients to each other. It's just a good feeling to collaborate and be in the space with some dynamic women. We can learn about money. We can learn about business. We can learn about LinkedIn, but we also can learn about spirituality, or we can learn about self-care. So you really have something for everyone. I think it's really one of the best networking groups out there, which is why you know I'm your biggest fan. Why, thank you. (laughs) So everybody needs to join the Bra Network. Join now because the prices are increasing and it's coming to a city near you. So let's go. Warrior Two. Where
1: do they go, Carrie? How do they join? Good question. Bra-network.com and use that code WARRIOR2 for 20% off.
0: All right, everybody on the show today, human rights campaigner Yasmin Mohammed. Yasmin advocates for the rights of women living within Muslim majority countries, as well as those who struggle under religious fundamentalism in general. She is the founder of the Free Hearts, Free Minds. It is an organization that provides mental health support for members of the LGBT community and free thinkers living within Muslim majority countries, where both crimes Can be punished by execution. Her book, Unveiled, is a memoir that recalls her experiences growing up in fundamentalist Islamic household and her arranged marriage to a member of Al-Qaeda. In it, she sheds light on the religious trauma that so many women still today are unable to discuss. She has spoken in Canadian Parliament on the M103 and Islamophobia and has been featured in many mainstream media publications such as CNN, CBC, BBC, ABC, Australia, Al Jazeera, and the New York Times. I mean, I could go on and on. Welcome to the show, Yasmin. Thank you so much for having me, Liz. Well, I know you are one busy woman because this book is amazing. If I even tell anybody about it, if I even say the title, everyone's like, what? What is this book? So, I mean, I'm really excited because I don't know if my audience knows about you yet, but they're going to know about you today. Let's start at the beginning, where I ironically always start with all my guests. I love to talk about how your childhood influenced where you are now, and nobody has had their childhood influence them more than you. So I'm really, really glad you're here today. You grew up in a fundamentalist Islamic home, but in the Western world. Reading your story, it's so traumatic, so abusive, so much trauma for a child. How in the world did you survive this as a child?
1: You know, now that I've started speaking out and I've got my own podcast called Forgotten Feminists, where I'm speaking to different women who have also overcome and we started to find a common thread in all of our experiences And that common thread is that each one of us kind of had something in us where we believed that we deserved more, you know, like we had a hope or we had a fire within us. And no matter how much they told us, you are nothing or something in us that was saying, but you are, (laughs) you know, (laughs) don't believe them, you know, just play along because you have to. But don't believe them, you know, and just dream of a better life, hope for a better life, visualize a better life. Weirdly, we all did this, you know, completely. These are the days before the words visualize and manifestation were, you know, buzzwords that we were all saying. Right. right. Way before any of that, you know, as I recount in my book, you might remember where I talked about how before I would go to sleep every night, I would imagine the apartment that I would live in alone, which was completely forbidden. Women can't live on their own. And I would, you know, I would imagine it pillow by pillow, you know, every single fiber in the carpet. Like I just would visualize this thing, bring it to life. And so many other women that I've spoken to did similar things where they would write down in their journal, step-by-step, this is what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna marry a man that looks like this. I'm gonna have three children. I'm gonna have this job. I'm gonna live in this country. And it all came true. You know, all these things that they had dreamt for themselves came true. And as you're writing them, as you're dreaming them, as you're hoping them, as you're thinking them, you don't really ever think that it's going to come true, but it just keeps you alive, you know? It just keeps you from falling into that dark vortex that's pulling you under. So I think that, you know, I don't know what it was that was within me and how I was able to keep that flame alive. I mean, I've got to be honest, it was extinguished many times in my life. I know that for a fact, but somehow I was able to bring it back. And the very last time it was extinguished was, as you mentioned, when I was married to that Al-Qaeda agent who my mom chose, quote, you know, she said, I needed to find a man that was strong enough to control you. That was the
0: aim. And that's what's so crazy too, Yasmin, because I think in our minds, we're like, oh, this whole fundamentalist Islam thing is propelled by men. But when it's propelled by women... That's yeah. I think, so confusing. Like if your mother is holding it up, it's, it'd be one thing if she was being forced and, you know, if, I can see how that
1: could be so confusing. Honestly, Liz, it was one of the hardest things for me to be able to admit to myself was that this, it's easy to blame men. It's easy to blame the patriarchy. It's easy to do the us and them. But the truth is women uphold it and women police each other probably more viciously than the men do. You know, it's women that take their daughters to get FGM. It's women that perform FGM. It's female genital mutilation. It's completely a women-led barbaric practice. You know, you can see now with the videos that the women from Iran are sharing, incredibly bravely sharing with us, you can see the religious police. They're women. It's other women that are policing other women. And throwing them into these vans and they're getting the men to do the muscle work of pulling the women into the vans and stuff. But it's women that are going and finding other women and pointing them out. I think the new generation of women coming up are like, I'm not having
0: this. I think that's what the tipping point moment is that it's going on in Iran right now, right? Like, I mean, Mm -hmm. if I'm not wrong, but it seems like this younger generation coming up is like, "Uh -uh." uh-uh. And we're going to film you and show you doing this. So the whole world knows what you're doing. And then the old kind of regime, the old way of life is being slowly forced out. And, you know, there's a, I guess, a panic to hold on to that old way. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, most of Iran's citizens right now are under 30. That's just the way their demographics work out. So it's not in their favor. It's not in the regime's favor that we've got this younger generation of people and a lot of them have access to the Internet and, you know, their their minds are open. You can't even though this Islamic regime is a very closed society with the Internet. It's really hard unless you're North Korea. It's really hard to completely separate your society from the rest of the world and what's going on. Most of Iranians are atheists, too. I mean, it's an Islamic Republic of Iran. But the fact that this religion has been shoved down their throats in such a vicious manner for the past 43 years of course you're going to end up with atheists at the end of it. I mean, they want nothing to do with this religion. And it, I have to underscore how dangerous it is, though, because we spend a lot of time celebrating Iranians for what they're doing. And of course, they're beyond brave and they deserve all the celebration in the world. But there is such a dark side to this. There there are so many men, women and children that are being killed. They kill people like flies, you know, and people are losing are separating themselves from their families, if their families are involved in any kind of activism. So it's not just deaths, but there's all sorts of destruction that's going on in the country right now. But it's a revolution and it's a bloody revolution. But, you know, of course, I wish them all the best. It was Iran started this whole thing, you know, in the 70s when when the Islamic regime took over in Iran. That's what sort of encouraged political Islam all over the Muslim majority world. I don't know if you've seen the pictures, but you can see like Egypt and Libya and Iraq and even Afghanistan. Before that, people were secular. People were moving along with everybody else in the West. I mean, not at the same pace, of course. They were still behind the West, but they were moving in that direction. You didn't see religious people unless it was like in the villages with the uneducated or the illiterate or the, you know, so few people were still hardcore, you know, Muslims. And now because of it being Connected with politics, yeah, that's yeah, and power. Marry the religion and the politics, exactly. Yeah, and that's so. so anyway, here too,
0: by the way. So, of course, I mean, yes. This, this yes. is what people really need to understand, right? Yes. Is it that when you put these two things together that have no business being together, religion and so politics? So dangerous. No business. It's so dangerous. This is you're watching Iran is an extreme version of what happens when you start going down that road. And that's what people don't realize. They think, well, how can it be bad? It's Christianity. We're, you know, we're telling people, but then it starts with one of these great intentions of morals and you know, everything's yeah. gonna be peaceful and it's gonna be safer and better. But then it ends with this kind of control, this kind of abuse, because it goes out of control. Exactly. Yeah. And that's exactly what happened. Well, well, I send a pre-interview form and ask questions. And I ask, and I always ask the same question. I ask, you know, what is a moment that your life changed on a dime? And your answer is, it, I literally, like, it choked me. I was like, oh, you say, I say, tell me a moment when your life changed on a dime. And you said, when the terrorist I was forced to marry and my mother were chatting about when to take my daughter to Egypt to get her genitals mutilated with a razor blade. Holy shit, Yasmin.
1: Yeah. So that was, I mean, you were talking before about like, you know, when I was talking about that light being extinguished in me, that was one of the times when I was so dehumanized, I was so demoralized, I was so nothing. And then when they started talking about when they were going to take my little girl to like my perfect little baby girl that I'm holding in my arms. She's barely a week old. And they're talking about taking a razor blade to her and mutilating her genitals. Like I just, even after all these years, I'm filled with rage and anger and fear and, you know, disgust. And there's just sadness for all the other little girls out there. And that was one of the moments when whatever little spark must have still been in there came to life. And I was like, absolutely not. I need to get out of this house, away from these people, and I will protect my daughter. She will not have this done to her. I mean, at the time I had a high school education, you know, I had a kid. I had no connection because this is the days before Social media. I had no connection with, you know, that's what abusers do too. First thing they do is separate you from everybody. I did had no idea how I was going to do it, but I was absolutely positive. I was not going to let these people hurt my baby girl. And she saved my life. I tell her that all the time. If it wasn't for me needing to get her out of that house, I wouldn't have ever found the courage to get myself out.
0: That's incredible. Incredible. And, you know, the human spirit is so amazing because you over here dreaming of your carpet, living in your apartment. Mm -hmm. uh, And then you had your almost dream come to life because when you have a baby, right, that's like a dream come to life. Right. You have this person. You're like, oh, my God, I made a person, you know, (laughs) and you have this person. And you, all you can think of is like, how do I love this and care for it and keep it alive? And so you're right. Someone coming for it and saying, I'm going to mutilate. Can't even imagine what went through your head and how fast you were like, I have got to get out of here. And I know getting out of there was no easy task. What was something that you remember from the getting out of there process? Did you start plotting immediately from that moment and then figure out like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to go along like I've always done because I know that's the way. Right.
1: How did you plot that out? I had a real desire to get out as soon as I could, but I had no inkling how I was going to do it. So I was, like you said, I was kind of going under the radar and waiting for my moment. And my moment was actually an incredibly sad moment. And that was when, so I found out I was pregnant a second time. And at that point, again, I gave up. I was like, well, that's it then. I guess I'm moving to Afghanistan. Like there's no way that I'm going to be able to be a single mom to two kids on my own. And so again, I gave up. And then I found out that the baby didn't have a heartbeat. And it was like this moment, almost like you're about to be hit by a train and then you just have like a split second to run and get out of the way. And I just felt like I need to get out of here quickly. Before I get pregnant again, like I can't fall back into that darkness again. And so Oprah always talks about how sometimes the universe sends you angels. So I believe that baby was an angel sent to me to remind me to get out of that house quickly. Enough with the just like waiting for the right moment. There's no right moment. Just get out. When I went to have the DNC surgery, because I was going under general anesthetic, the nurse told me that I would need somebody to help me with my daughter afterwards because I would be a bit groggy. And she said, you know, you'll probably need someone for like 24 hours or, you know, a couple days or something. But I told him that I'd need someone to help me with our daughter for the next seven days. I knew he would never do it. And so I knew he would say, well, go stay at your mom's then. And I also knew that it'd be easier to get away from my mom than it was to get away from him. Yeah. And so when he sent me and my daughter to my mom's house the next morning, you know, even though I'm still in pain from the surgery, went through the yellow pages, found a lawyer through lawyer referral. At the time they had a program where you could get, you could meet with a lawyer for free for half an hour or something and found a lawyer close to me, went to her covered head to toe in black at this time. I must have been quite the sight walking in with my baby frantic because I needed to have this meeting with her really quickly before my mom came home. And I said, I need a divorce. I need full custody and I need a restraining order and you can't contact me. Again, no cell phones. So she was to contact me, she'd be calling me at my mom's house. And I couldn't have that because of course I had to hide this from my mom as well. It wasn't really plotting as much as it was just like, you saw the, the flap of a butterfly's wing. Yeah. Wow. It was a very long process. I mean, that's just the abridged version. It's been a long road, but of course, I feel very grateful. And I know that there's so many people that didn't have, you know, that just that split second opportunity to, to get out, to, to find their way out. Absolutely. Uh, so I am grateful.
0: After this, you know, harrowing journey, all this trauma that you lived through, cutting ties with your family. You eventually got married again, and you tried to have this normal life. Mm-hmm. How'd that go for you, Yasmin? Because I can't even imagine pretending. Yeah, well, you know. at the grocery store now, after everything that you've been through, trying to be like a normal person.
1: The mind is so powerful, Liz. So powerful. I did this, fake it till you make it. And I just, I told myself, i envisioned who I wanted to be. I created that person that I wanted to be based on who was going to be a role model for my daughter. Who did I want raising my daughter? Who did I want my daughter looking up to? And so that's how I like fashioned this woman that I was going to become. And that's who I became. And I was living that life to the point that I didn't even Like you fake it till you make it and then you realize you're not even faking it anymore. Like, oh, my gosh, that is who I am. Like, I'm her. her. I became, you know, it has happened. I've manifested her. Everything was hunky dory for years and years. But, you know, it's there. It's in your body. It's in your blood. It's in your bones. It's in your soul. And I did eventually end up having... A really drastic breakdown because you can't just push this stuff away and move forward and then hope it's going to like dissolve, you know, and I thought it would, I guess. I just thought I would push it back and move forward and it would just stay in my past, but it catches up with you eventually. Yeah, I had to deal with it all.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's funny, right? You can only push all those feelings down for so long because you're right. There's only one way through trauma and feelings because I'm a coach and I know these things. And believe me, I was a recovering neck upper. I actually pretended I didn't even have a body. I didn't want to cry about anything. I used my brain to solve all my problems versus my heart. You know, when when you've had any trauma, you're just, you're trying to really just live neck up. You're like, I can't be. And then all the women I coach will say, my tears are stuck in my throat.
1: Yeah.
0: And I'll be like, you know why? Because you've cut yourself off. You're trying to solve everything up here. And when you go down into your heart, then those tears come out. Then then all of a sudden you've got this release. I know exactly what you're talking about. There's no way around the trauma. You have to go through it. I'm amazed that you were able to work through this. And I know it's still... So like it's like one and done. Oh, now I'm done. I've mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I get that it's not also a one and done. So I, mm-hmm. I and I and sharing this book, obviously, is going to make so many other women feel seen, you know, and what they've been through. So tell me, how did your book and I love the title of it because it's to me taking your story, but also making people understand, like, this is how this happens. It's called Unveiled How Western Liberals Empower Radical Islam, which I'm sure would shock the shit out of everybody. But how did that book come about and how did it bring you out of hiding?
1: So that actually happened because of an episode of Bill Maher's show, Real Time. And he had Sam Harris and Ben Affleck on the show. And Sam and... Bill started to talk about Sam's book that was coming out. And the book is called Islam and the Future of Tolerance. And the, And Sam actually wrote that book with a Muslim man named Majid Nawaz from the UK. And they were talking about how in, you know, according to Pew Research, it was like 86% of Muslims or sorry, of Egyptians, so yeah, they're usually Muslims, believed that anybody who denounced the religion of Islam should be killed. And with my family being from Egypt and with me denouncing Islam, I really felt like these men were talking about me on HBO. So it was pretty crazy because I even ignored myself. I minimized myself. When you're being raised Muslim, you get filled with a lot of self-hate that you don't even know that you have. And, and that self-hate comes from being told that non-Muslims are dirty. Non-Muslims are going to be fueled for hell. Non-Muslims are, you know, the filth of the earth. And so when you denounce the it's almost like you have those feelings in you, but you didn't know that they were there. And so I kind of was apologetic about the fact that I was not a Muslim anymore. I didn't want to say it publicly, you know, and I certainly didn't want to advocate for myself, like the audacity, you know what I mean? I felt like, who am I to advocate for myself? But these men, two American men on, you know, television, talking about people who leave Islam and how so, you know, not almost ninety percent of the country believe that they should be killed, and these men are talking about. What an atrocity that is. And I was thinking, ah, it's is an atrocity. atrocity. You're right. Yes. Yeah, I mean, why are we not getting upset about this? We should care about this. This should be a problem. You know, and they were talking about how gay people are killed in like 15 Muslim majority countries, how, you know, the punishment for being gay is execution. And they're talking about all of these things that we should be angry about. And of course, Ben Affleck jumps in and he's like, oh, you're being racist. Ah, oh, you're being Islamist you're being xenophobic, blah, blah, blah. And so he silenced the conversation. So I went from feeling really excited and feeling empowered and feeling like, oh my gosh, these men see me like I matter. I didn't even know that I mattered to myself to having this guy come clamp it all down. And the response on Facebook the next day was like, Good for him, Bad Affleck shut down those racist white American men, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, what is happening? And I felt like ashamed that these were my Facebook friends. Like I had been so silent about my life. These are people that I'd known for like some of them like 15, 20 years and hadn't talked to them about anything. I hadn't shared anything with them. Wow. And so for them to have such a skewed understanding of what just happened, and most of them really just had a problem with Sam and Bill's skin color and ethnicity and sex, that was their biggest problem. And so I thought, well, okay, well, I'm going to speak out as, you know, an Arab woman with brown skin, and I'm going to say the same thing that these men are saying. And so you can't sort of just dismiss me because of my identity, it's going to force you to deal with the argument. And there you go. That's what made me decide to speak out. And
0: what has been the response after doing this book? Because obviously you told this amazing story of a survivor, someone who's been through absolute hell on every level, betrayal, abuse. I mean, all the things that you've been through, but you also encourage people to kind of wake up. So what has been the response when you've been going around and doing press? What, How have you been received, Yasmin?
1: I wish I had a better answer for this question, but the unfortunate truth is it's been a really difficult journey. I expected to get a lot of hate and animosity from the Muslim community because, of course, I'm a whistleblower, you know? And not only am I a whistleblower, I'm a woman whistleblower. It's so, you know, so much worse, <laughs> so much worse. I mean, they, they, they had me literally muzzled. You know, they had my face covered in black and I ripped all that off. And I'm, here's my face. Here's my hair. Here's my voice. Cause even a woman's voice is considered aura, which means like nakedness or shame. Mm. A woman should be not seen, not heard, just in the kitchen, obeying her husband. You know, making babies, that's what women do. So, you know, I'm not only hated because I speak out, but also because I'm a woman who speaks out, which makes it, I'm extra hated. And I knew that, of course, I expected that, but wow, did I not expect that there would be such a vicious reaction from the people who I thought would be my allies, So people on the left who believe in feminism, believe in liberalism, believe in, you know, civil liberties, believe in all of the things that I believe in. And they were the ones who were who it hurt. It hurt when they were the ones that were being vicious to me. It didn't hurt when Muslims were being vicious because I felt like, well, I kind of I get it, you know, like that's where they're indoctrinated in this cult and they you know it offends them to have somebody speaking badly about their cult. And I, you know, I grew up Muslim. I know that you're supposed to silence any kind of dissent. I mean we all know that. We're all aware of Salman Rushdie. We're all aware of Charlie Abdo. We're all aware of what happens to people who speak out. So you are, you know, it's you it's incumbent on every Muslim to silence any kind of criticism. Yeah. So it was expected from that side. I really did not expect, you know, my personal story to be considered hateful. And people that supposedly believe in free speech and free expression trying to silence me because they think that what I'm saying is essentially blasphemous. That's really what I was hearing. I was hearing the same echoes from both sides. Using different terminology, but it's the same thing. At the end of the day, this one would call it blasphemy laws. This one would call it, you know, Islamophobia, whatever it was. You're both, you know, doing the same work, which is trying to discredit me, trying to silence me, trying to stop me from criticizing this religion. And what's important to note is those same people on the left are so loud when they're speaking up against purity culture or any kind of sexism or misogyny and Christianity. Wow. Are their voices loud? I mean, look at the what the big deal that they made over The Handmaid's Tale. Right. Handmaid's Tale was based on Iran, people. (laughs) Like, let's just remember that this is fiction that is based on the nonfiction that is happening in Iran. They're just so comfortable criticizing another religion. I mean, Ben Affleck himself, he did an entire movie called Dogma, where he was very comfortable criticizing Christianity. But when these men started to talk about problems in Islam, he's trying to silence them? What is it that makes this religion this sacred cow? That it's just another one of these monotheistic Abrahamic religions. It's one of the trilogy. You know, but somehow the left have decided that is the one that we can't talk about, you know, it's interesting. and I know that it comes from I'm sure that there's lots of different reasons why they feel that way. Trying to be anti-racist, trying to be, you know, against Western civilization and not trying to but be colonialists or whatever. But I don't care. So crazy.
0: I mean, you're telling your story. You're not over there hating on everybody left and right. You're telling your story and saying, you know, wake up. This is how mm-hmm. women, this is how children are still being treated. This is still happening. Yeah. You know, wake up. This happened. Yeah. Ha- and I'm, you you weren't even, you weren't even living there. You know, that's, yeah. the, you know, so yeah. that's what I think is, you know, that's why I can't even understand. that. Like that just, yeah. makes no sense to me. But I think yeah. that, that they obviously think you hate. Islam, you hate Muslims, you hate, they're just looping it all together.
1: And it's so dangerous for them to have this mindset because what they're doing at that point is they are supporting the oppressors. They are standing side by side with the Islamists and they don't even recognize that they're doing that. Like when I was talking about them echoing each other, they are the useful idiots that are supporting the Islamist propaganda. And I recount the story in my book of how when I was 12 years old, Mr. Fabro, who wrote the foreword for my book, when he approached me and asked me, you know, if I was okay, and I told him about all the abuse that was going on at home. And, you know, he contacted the police and child services and this huge investigation happened. And at the end of it, the judge says, well, that's your culture. That's your, you know, that's your religion. That's your family. So you're just going to have to endure. So that's how dangerous this cultural relativism is, this moral relativism, because you are basically telling me I don't matter as much as other Canadian girls because of this accident of birth that my family happens to be coming from this country in North Africa. So therefore you need to endure. If your family was coming from somewhere in in Europe or if they'd come from America or whatever, then I would protect you. But sorry, you know, your family comes from the wrong country. That's how dangerous it is. And it's the same thing with other issues like FGM. Again, how common that is in America and the UK and even in Canada. And when you speak out against that, they say, oh, well, we'll just educate the parents. Nobody gets prosecuted, you know, because if a blonde haired, blue eyed woman or man took a razor blade to their blonde haired, blue eyed baby girl, and cut off her clitoris, you best believe those people would be behind bars or in a psychiatric hospital. But because they're Somali or because they're Egyptian or because they're whatever, it's like, oh, we'll just educate them. It's horrific. It is absolutely horrific because you are not protecting these girls the way you would protect other girls and it is the bigotry of low expectations because these people are not idiots they understand just as well as anybody else that doing this to a little girl is you know detrimental to her physical and possibly mental health they know that already but they're choosing to do it because it's their they it's their religious demand just like a jehovah's witness person they know that not giving their son this blood transfusion could mean his death But they choose to do that because that's what their religion demands. Religious people will make harmful decisions for their kids. If they are strong enough believers, they don't need to be educated. They need to be prosecuted. Yeah. You know, we have to have lines. We have to have where are the borders? Where's the, where are the boundaries that we say, okay, you can have your religious freedom as much as you want, but this is where it ends. Yeah. Not when it includes child abuse, not when it includes child marriage, not when it includes so many aspects that are okay in your religion, but they are not okay here in this free secular country. And we don't have that. And that was really the subtitle of my book, is that we need to have those boundaries. When we don't have those boundaries, we are empowering the fundamentalists. We're empowering the extremists. We're empowering the radicals versus supporting the progressive Muslims or the open-minded Muslims that are trying to fight against these barbaric and archaic edicts in their religion.
0: Yeah, I think people would be shocked to know what you just you know talked about, that people are doing that here, that
1: the FGM is happening
0: here in the yep. United States. I Absolutely. Don't think people really realize how much people hide behind religion to still perform, you know, to abuse children, to perform these atrocities. So I think that's probably what people are so lit up by with you, right? Because even in this country, obviously— where where people would think oh that's not happening well i mean you know let's talk about they're trying to force children to have births you know like yeah. we're we're going down this road like don't be so shocked don't be over here fucking shocked because we're yeah. already going down that road we're already, go- already going down the road of oh we're going to force kid we're not going to let children have abortions we're going to make them drive to another state cuz they're 12 or 10 I mean, let's just you know call a spade a spade. There's definitely some lines that are already being crossed. That are there were already being crossed in the biggest mm-hmm. of ways, which are now creeping across even you know in our Western culture. So mm-hmm. it's just, I'm, I think that's what I think is so incendiary about some of the things you're talking about because people want to h- hide behind religion, and there is no hiding child abuse behind mm-hmm. religion. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't and abuse of women. Frankly, so tell me about the work you're doing now, advocating for the rights of women living within Muslim-majority countries and even women who are just suffering under, you know, suffering here. Why is it so important? What is at stake right now?
1: I have an organization called Free Hearts, Free Minds, which focuses on ex-Muslims in general, so men and women. And so the free hearts refers to the, you know, LGBT community, because like I said, you could be executed for being gay in so many Muslim-majority countries. It's very dangerous to come out of the closet and also so that's free hearts and then free minds are for free thinkers, ex-Muslims, people who denounce the religion. Again, very dangerous. You could be executed for that crime of wrong, wrong think. So those are the two groups that we focus on in our organization. Both of those groups obviously are dealing with religious trauma, what which we now have coined Islamo-trauma, because you know, we're trying to counter the Islamophobia and say, well, no, actually it's Islam- oh, trauma." So we talk about, you know, different skills and it's like a toolbox of ways of overcoming your religious trauma. Our first session is all about identity because as a Muslim, you really, you really, they really teach you to consider it part of your identity or your actual first and foremost identity. And so when you denounce the religion, you kind of have this moment of figuring out who am I? So as I referred before, I kind of had to think of who I wanted to be and then became that woman. So we all have to go through a similar process. And so there's eight sessions and it's community building. So they are group sessions because that's so important because you lose. Yeah, you lose your friends, you lose your family, you lose everybody. And so and even if you don't come out, even if you don't lose them, you can't talk to them. You can't be yourself in front of them. You have to live this double life. And so to have people that you trust that have gone through this, you know, this journey together and those people that you can talk to, that you can share with, you know, it's so valuable. And so we have people from all over the Muslim majority world that we support. I hope one day to grow big enough to be able to support people in the Western world as well. But we have to scale up because, as you can imagine, the waiting list is just astronomical. and We just don't have the funds to match. So we're working our hardest. So that's my organization, Free Hearts, Free Minds. And then for women focused is Forgotten Feminists. So that's where I have this series of conversations with different women from around the world that have overcome all sorts of different things. A lot of them grew up Muslim or grew up in Muslim-majority countries. People hear my story and they go on, they're just like, oh my God, that's just horrible. How did you survive that? Honestly, I was in Canada. I was in a secular country. It boggles the mind for people who've read my book and who are so traumatized by it for me to tell them my story is a fairy tale compared to some of the women that you will hear tell their stories on Forgotten Feminists because they were in Somalia or they were in Saudi Arabia. You know what I mean? When you're in a secular country, you just have to get away from just. I mean, obviously, it's hard enough, but you get away from your family, you get away from your community, and then you're free. But the same can't be said for women in Saudi Arabia or women in Iran or women in, you know, in Pakistan or 50 other Muslim majority countries. So it's incredibly empowering to hear these women tell their stories, talk about how they have overcome, how they've survived and thrived. And that motivates other women when they read these, when they listen to these stories, they feel like, you know, they see themselves in these women and they think, well, maybe I can do it too. I mean, if she could do it with all these obstacles, perhaps I could do it as well. And it's a ripple effect, you know, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to help as many women recognize that the power is within them to find their own freedom.
0: I love that because you're just encouraging the next woman to pull the next woman up and the next woman up. And that's, you're right, that's the ripple effect. And that's the power of women, you know, that one woman gets is free and feeling like they're going to make it. And then they reach down and pull the next woman up. So I think that's incredible. So amazing work you're doing. All right, we're on to the speed round. What does it mean to you to be a warrior woman? Because Lord, of all the women I've had on this podcast, and I've had a lot of women here, you are almost now top of my list, top of my list of warrior women. So what does that mean to you when I say that? It makes
1: me tired. (laughs) I'm a tired warrior Warrior woman. woman. Yeah, yeah. I think it's unfortunate that so many of us are forced to be warrior women, you know, like I wish that we could have not been. I wish that we could have just been able to just be. But obviously, I'm very grateful that I had whatever it was in me and that I was able to get out of that situation. And, you know, kind of going back to what you just said, you know, the quote that I have on my Twitter is from Toni Morrison, where she says, the function of freedom is to free someone else. And I think that's really what it's about. Like, I've, I'm have i very grateful to have gotten myself out And I think that my duty, my responsibility, you know, I'm compelled to now support other women that were in this, that are in the same position that I was in. Absolutely. What is a mantra or quote you live by? Although you just gave a really good one.
0: So do you have another mantra or quote that you love or live by?
1: I have quite a few of them. This Too Shall Pass, that one I used a lot. I know it's got biblical connotations, but whatever. It works for me. You know, I I always, Carpe Diem, which, you know, back to the whole Robin Williams and his movie, The Dead Poets Society, because Carpe Diem is the total antithesis of Islam. Islam teaches you that this world is nothing and meaningless, and it's the afterlife. You know, that's what you're, that's the real life. And so to start thinking of like appreciating the moment, appreciating the here and now, appreciating this life, appreciating the wind and the flowers and the trees and the sound of laughter and just seizing the day, you know, being in the moment, that was something that was a real paradigm shift for me. And so I always have to remind myself, you know, if we're in a situation where it's like, You know, should we do this? It's going to cost a lot of money or, you know, are we going to have enough time? I have to be like, nope, carpe diem. Let's just do this because we're going to, you know, we don't know if we're going to get this opportunity again. And so, yeah, I'd say that's another one. Life is short. You never know how long you're going to be here. So. I'll the best of it. If you were taken
0: from us tomorrow, people would say you've done more than most women do in a lifetime. So let me just give at least give you that comfort that you are way ahead of the game in terms of leaving a legacy.
1: Let's oh, just say thanks, that. Liz. What makes you feel unstoppable? I think the power of other women, like the stories of other women, the energy of other women, the power of other women, it makes me it reminds me that we are fucking goddesses. We really are. You know, like you just they try so hard to make us forget our power and to diminish us. And it's like, no, like we create life. You wouldn't be here if it wasn't for us, you know. So I just like that's what makes me feel unstoppable. It's just that power of women and being with other women who know their power. Oh, it's intoxicating. It just really is. Just makes you feel alive. It reminds you of who you are, and and yeah, absolutely makes you feel unstoppable. Yeah, it's the whole reason I started
0: this podcast, and I started it in COVID, right? Like COVID oh. hit, and the podcast released, and I was like, oh my god! But my exactly what you're saying was the reason I started this podcast. You're so right, and I always with the women I coach, I always say, well, you, if you can create life, then you can change it. That's beautiful. I mean, if you can create a life, you mm. can change your life. So don't I don't take any shit from anybody on that one because I'm like, don't even sell your power that short. Right. What are you most proud of?
1: That my daughters, as far as I know, (laughs) we'll find out um, that my daughters don't have this childhood trauma that they have to overcome, you know, that they are they that they are light and free They know their power. They've always known their power. They've never been diminished. They've never had to fight for their freedoms. They've never had to fight to be seen. You know, it's like feel so. I mean, that probably is part of this, the answer of the previous question. That makes me feel unstoppable, too, that I just feel like I can correct such an error, you know, such an egregious wrong. It heals me, of course. But it's like I was able to make two beautiful, amazing, transcendent girls that are going to enter this world fully aware of their power. And I did that. You know, I'm so proud of myself for doing that. And I'm so proud of them. And yeah, th- I think that's definitely what I'm most proud of. Yeah.
0: Oh my gosh. Yes. And I, you know, just even thinking about how you've stopped that generational trauma, like it's yeah. stopped with you. Yeah. Yes. You just put a fucking stop to it. Like, yes. Just thinking of the power of that. Like, I didn't know I was stop. doing it, but no, totally. Well, you don't. We don't when we're doing things. Yeah. Like, just the power of stopping that and that everything from there forward is not, it's not going to continue. Exactly. Um, I mean, that's the uh, the pulling the other woman up, too, right? Because knowing that it stops with them, it stops with yeah. you. That's the power women have. So incredible. Yeah. What keeps you going when you're feeling lost?
1: I think that's really why I started Forgotten Feminists, to be perfectly honest, was because the work with Free Hearts, Free Minds is very dark. I'm dealing with people that are in trauma. And I am overcoming my own traumas. Anybody that writes to me relating to my book is sharing their traumas with me. I'm always kind of like in the darkness. And it it is hard to keep yourself afloat. And so that's why I started Forgotten Feminists was because I wanted to sort of remind myself of all of the positive stories. So it's similar to you starting Warrior Women. It was to like remind us of that light and that power and that grace and so they keep me going I'm really really grateful that I'm able to have those conversations and you know then I've got all of my private groups with different friends and different women that we can we've got you know our group therapy clubs you know or wine club that we call it okay I'm going to tell you what it is so as I was like (laughs) wait (laughs) a minute round what's happening I'm going to tell you so um When you are a Muslim woman and you have a voice, they call you a whore. They call you a slut. They call you all of these really dirty words. And one of those words is sharmuta. And that's like a word that's supposed to like, you know, make any woman quiver and be like, oh, my gosh, you know, don't call me that. It's like prostitute or something, filthy, dirty prostitute. And so we have this one group with like 25 women. It's called the Sharmuta Group Therapy Club. <laughs> and we just, you know, we just Take share.
0: and Just shove it right in their face. Exactly. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. And so we also have a wine club too. And so, yeah, we just, we support each other and laugh and cry. And like you said, it's not a done and dusted. I don't, you know, it's hard to accept, but. This is an ongoing process.
0: Yeah. And levity is everything. I use levity in my coaching more than anything because we will be talking about the darkest, most horrible, oh my God, this happened to me. And, you know, and I will just say something, you know, and people will just, we'll be crying our eyes out and laughing and cursing and all the things that I think it's so important because you need a little bit of lightness. You need a little bit of a relief, you know? I mean, no one's going to say that, you know, what people are going through isn't devastating and fucking terrible on every level. But just to know that you can kind of sometimes just release also like with a laugh and just make some off-color stupid joke that only you guys can understand, right? Making fun of that stupid word. You know, it really, to me, there's a bond there when you use levity for healing, you know? Absolutely. So I love that. I love that you do that. What's exciting you the most right now?
1: Right now, I'm most excited about Christmas around the corner, to be honest. Yeah. Christmas is everything. (laughs) Yeah. Christmas is coming. That was one of the many things. Did you have any? No, right? No, no Christmas, no Halloween, no. Not everybody celebrated around me, and I didn't get any of that stuff. Santa never came to our house, so you know, of course, I take all of these things way too seriously. Now (laughs) you're a Christmas crazy person now. (laughs) Yeah, with all the holidays, with everything. I mean, even my husband's, you know, he's from Newfoundland, which is a part of Canada that's like almost all Irish people. I've never been to Ireland. Well, he has, but you know, his family is all in, in Canada now, but he's from Ireland originally. And even on St. Patrick's Day, my daughter goes crazy. Like the whole house is green. She's dressed head to toe in green. Like every single holiday, we take it way too seriously. But, you know, it keeps life fun. And like I said, all of I was all of these things are forbidden from me. And so carpe diem. Right. Enjoy. Enjoy every moment that you possibly can.
0: Yeah. And you know what? You're making up for lost time. You miss a lot. Yeah. Of holidays, so you got to double up and triple up on these current holidays. I think that makes sense. Got it.
1: Nice. Yeah.
0: I need six yeah. in the house, honey. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I, I <laughs> Let me see. One, two. Three. I've already I've I've. No, three. I have three up right now and I didn't even, you're and so, I had Christmas growing up. And it's, so, it's you're December allowed to 1st. have like 15. You're my people, Liz. <laughs> Just, yes, right back at you, right back at you. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been such a joy talking to you. You're such an amazing woman. I was so excited when I was at this lunch and this woman said, I'm reading this incredible book. And she, I told her I had a podcast. She said, you have to get her. She's the, she's incredible. And I was like, Aww. who is this? Who is this woman? So literally just some woman at a lunch told me about you and I just de you and you're so gracious that you came. And I'm so appreciative because I really, your story is incredible. So oh, I will about so your story from the rooftops.
1: So thank Aww. you. Much. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. And thank you, nameless woman at that lunch with Liz. Yes. <laughs> I don't even know her name. I don't even know her name. We were like, a, it was
0: a, at the end of a lunch really fast. But anyway, thank you so much. And that thank so you, for everyone, for joining me today. Remember to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. And if you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star written review. This is the Conversations with Warrior Women podcast with me, Liz Swadek. And remember, every woman has a story. You just need to ask her. Bye.